Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. moving toward the politics of nostalgia because if we could move away from a globalized world we want the benefits of globalization but we want to live in our own village traditional distinction between domestic politics and international politics is disappearing the nice garden that Europe is cannot survive if it doesn't have the power to influence the jungle around We should work in the future for a system in which Russia has a privileged relationship uh, with the European Union. The UN didn't fix the Cold War, and the UN is not going to fix the relations between the superpowers of today. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by Policy Forum and the National Security College at the ANU. And with most pods lately, we bring you this one as the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. Since our last podcast, we have seen Iranian special forces board a British-flagged vessel transiting international waters in the Persian Gulf. They have taken control of the vessel, they have parked it in Iranian waters, and they have raised the Iranian flag on this vessel. This is unarguably retaliation for the Brits commandeering an Iranian tanker accused of flouting international sanctions, and now the Brits are sending more vessels to the Gulf to protect their shipping. We have seen President Trump show some of his cards in terms of election strategy, and they seem to have the word race written all over them. The president has accused four Democratic candidates, all women mind you, whose ethnicities are not European based of being anti-American and suggesting that they, and I say in air quotes, go back to where they came from. This resulted in a large rally in North Carolina chanting, send them back. President Trump has since tried to distance himself from the chant after a strong backlash against its inherent racism, but has since doubled down on the they hate America rhetoric, which seems to indicate that part of his re-election strategy will focus on these women, at least during the Democratic primaries, and try to rally a core of nationalistic right-wing voters with divisive and racist tropes. Identity politics is alive and strong in the US. And just as I walked into the studio to record this intro, news is breaking that South Korea has fired warning shots at Russian aircraft who may have violated Korean airspace. And one would assume that they did not respond satisfactorily to the Koreans when they were challenged. And what a wonderful segue all this is into today's podcast, where we speak with Jean-Marie Guernot about geopolitics, Europe's relationship with the world, identity in a globalised yet fragmented world, and the future of national defence. Today, Jean-Marie is a distinguished fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he focuses on foreign policy. But before his time with Brookings, Jean-Marie was Director of Policy Planning at the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He was Head of Peacekeeping Operations at the United Nations, and he was also CEO of the International Crisis Group, among numerous other leading roles within public and private life. Jean-Marie has published widely, including a number of books, and is currently penning another with the working title of The Second Renaissance, where he looks at the flows of culture, identity, geography, and technology, and what kind of a world is likely to emerge as these and other trends interact and intersect. 
Jean-Marie has some interesting and pretty surprising takes on the world today and where it may go in the future. So let's hear from him right now. G'day Jean-Marie, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you for joining us today and I would like to start off asking you a question based on your career trajectory. You've worked in the private sector, you've served in leadership roles within national government in the pursuit of the national interest. Since then, you've moved on to supranational government at the United Nations and then to non-government organisations and think tanks with organisations such as the International Crisis Group and Brookings. How does a transition like that influence your thinking about government, security and the world in general? Well, I think in today's world, uh, international relations are managed by many more actors than governments. Uh, Domestic affairs, international affairs, they're all interconnected. And so for me, moving to from one level uh, to the other uh, was a very good experience in in understanding the world as it really is. National government is interesting, but you very quickly find that uh, the national interest uh, is nothing if it is not combined with a broader interest. And so I was very happy to serve the United Nations because I felt there I could serve a, a broader global interest that would in the end also serve my own country. And then moving on to uh, uh, the International Crisis Group, uh, an organization founded by uh, Gareth Evans. Uh, moving on to the International Crisis Group, I, uh, I felt that this was a position of influence. Uh, I had felt it when I was at the UN, a consumer of the products of the International Crisis Group. But uh, I felt running it that uh, I could contribute to the international debate and to the debate in the countries afflicted by countries. Very often those countries, they don't have good think tanks, they don't have a good press. And so what they learn uh, from a good report of the International Crisis Group is really uh, helps them shape the debate. And if you don't understand your own country, how are you going to change it for the, for the better? Yeah, talking about countries and the way they see themselves, we've seen a rise in presidentialism, uh, which in other words may be framed as populism or a very different style of leadership in the national governments, usually personified by President Trump or Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines and so on. And we're seeing uh, this rise of nationalism and populism and presidentialism throughout Europe and many different countries. What do you think is driving this change and where do you think it's leading the world? Well, I think it's uh, reflective of a crisis of politics. Uh, I think more and more people have a sense have a sense that uh, governments are not in control. So when they read the program of a political party, they are not convinced, uh, and so they they na- then believe in the politics of identity. Uh, when they elect Trump, uh, they elect uh, a billionaire because they believe that maybe they will too become a billionaire. They will be a billionaire by uh, sort of delegation, so, so to speak. I think that's very dangerous because I think it kills what is the essence of democracy, which is the debate, which is a discussion of ideas. And if you just identify with individuals, uh, you run the risk of uh, uh, illiberal democracy and eventually uh, dictatorship. So I think we have to restore politics, but restoring politics means restoring a sense of control, a sense that you can impact uh, events, that you're not just uh, uh, run by, by them. And in this globalized world where no country, even the, the, the most powerful countries, uh, can uh, go alone, uh, uh, it is difficult because it means uh, connecting different levels, uh, different operational levels uh, from the city to the country uh, to global institutions. And today there is a fear that global institutions, instead of helping manage globalization, they are the Trojan horse of globalization that will infringe on your sovereignty, that will infringe on your freedom of action. And so the uh, politicians, I think, have a hard time convincing their constituents uh, that they have a role to play. Yeah, you, you've mentioned a couple of trends there. You've mentioned globalization. You've mentioned uh, connectivity around the world. And that's not just connectivity of people, say, over the internet, but there's connectivity of economies and also populations where we're seeing large people movement. So there is this great interconnectedness throughout the world, but we're also seeing 
greater fragmentation as well, both in identity and in also the way we see communities facing this change. And we're also seeing the rise of ethno-nationalism and so on. These are essentially two competing forces that don't sit with each other. How do you see the future of the idea of globalisation when we see this kind of incongruence of interconnectivity, but also fragmentation? Well, I think the two, in a way, are paradoxically connected. Uh, I think after the, the end of the Cold War, there was a kind of uh, triumphalism, a sense of the, that the individual had agency, that every individual uh, could, could change the world. And now you have uh, the opposite feeling. You have the feeling that the individuals, they are lost uh, in a world that is much bigger uh, than, than them. And so they are looking for borders. Uh, they are looking for a sense of uh, their, own, uh, the limit, their own limits. Uh, they want to live in a, in a self-contained uh, uh, community. So that's why we, we are moving toward the politics of nostalgia, so to speak, as if we we could uh, move away from a globalized world, which provides enormous benefits. With, uh, if we had to produce all the things we consume uh, in uh, countries that have high uh, level, high standard of living, well, we couldn't afford them. Uh, <laughs> it would be much more expensive. Uh, we, we, we believe that uh, we want to have our cake and eat it. We want the benefits of globalization, but we want to live in our own village. And that is, that is not possible. We need to accept that our village is uh, connected economically, uh, intellectually, politically to the rest of the world. Uh, that doesn't mean that our identity is going to disappear, but that means that we have to manage it uh, within different circles. Mm, and so there, there's also different levels here because there's also uh, different vulnerabilities and we're talking about also defense. And I'm just going to read a pretty amazing quote from some of your written work. I'll put the link up on our website. But this really struck me when we look at the way the world is interconnected and some of the vulnerabilities that come for open societies as well. So I quote you here where you say, the only way to restore some symmetry and stability is to organize defense at the lowest possible level, empowering individuals to protect themselves against cyber attacks through point-to-point encryption and empowering cities to strengthen legal connections among its citizens, making it more difficult for outsiders to launch attacks. Devolving power to individuals and to lower levels of government will also deprive enemies of targets whose value resides in their symbolic value as centres of great power, reducing the advantage of asymmetric attack. Nuclear warfare, but also cyber warfare, will be less likely if there is no target of strategic importance." So that, that, that's a really interesting and forward-looking way, the way societies can defend themselves. But it's also somewhat devolving the power of the state. How do you see the trend lines evolving of how individuals can protect themselves and how communities can protect themselves? I think we have two, two trends that seem to go in opposite direction but have to be reconciled. On the one hand, I think small is getting more and more beautiful. Uh, I think people want the, the comfort, the proximity of their city. Maybe a big city, but their city, because they 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 see that as something that can be accountable, uh, that they can have control over, and I think in terms of security, uh, they see that a resilient society is a society which works in networks, and so we are moving from a kind of pyramidal uh, order, in which uh, the bigger you were. The stronger you were, the safer you were, to an order, to a networked uh, order in which a multitude of nodes mean that you are much more resilient because if one node is put out of commission, you have all the other nodes that are still that's still working. So that trend really pushes uh, toward uh, the uh, small uh, smaller entities, both for reasons of identity and for reasons of uh, resilience. At the same time, you want interoperability. You want uh, all those nodes. Uh, they, they're not going to be uh, isolated islands. That that wouldn't work. That would be terrible. You need uh, you need the connections, and you need institutions to manage the connections, to manage uh, norms that allow all these uh, uh, nodes to to work with with each other. And that's that's what I think is uh, complicated. 
and where we are still finding our ways. Uh, because I see the, the world uh, 30 years uh, from now as in some ways much more decentralized than today's world, but at the same time with uh, institutions, structures, which will not be world government. Uh, I think people don't want that, and I think it's a utopia, and it's a dangerous utopia, but uh, where we will see institutions that allow that decentralized level to to connect with each other through shared uh, shared norms and what kind of institutions will provide for the accountability and the connectivity between those different levels. That is not the typical federalism because typical federalism is purely geographic while probably the federalism of tomorrow will be much more functional. Uh, and so you will have uh, uh, different functionalities carried, uh, managed through different uh, uh, different institutions. Uh, and that's that's something that in a way is beginning to appear. We see specialized uh, organization that that run the internet. Uh, the problem is that those organization, what is their accountability? Uh, that's something that really needs to be improved. So you, you will see functional organization that uh, combine a political dimension with sometimes a corporate uh, dimension, non-governmental uh, dimension. But I, I think the political institutions of tomorrow, in a way, will uh, replace a nation state as we have seen it uh, since the 17th century. We are at the end of a very long cycle, and we don't know exactly what ins the institution of tomorrow will look like, but I'm pretty convinced they will be very different from today's institutions. And so you've, you've partly answered this question already, but I'm going to put it to you because I think that there's more we can pull out here. A lot of what you're talking about when you mention these networked cities and the way that people interact with each, other, with each other is based on technology. And a lot of this technology is changing very rapidly and in ways that make it impossible for us to predict how it's going to impact us as societies. How do we decide what principles we base the use of this technology and the development of this technology on? How do we assure that there is comprehensive adoption of these principles in a way that doesn't benefit defectors? Well, I think you're probably going to, to see a competition of norms, and that will be a, a good thing. You will, uh, people are on the move today. Uh, they are on the move sometimes because of poverty, uh, wars. They're also on the move because of opportunities. Uh, and uh, I think for the future of uh, freedom, if one believes in freedom, it's very important to have different options. And you, you probably will have, uh, hopefully, different uh, systems, different systems of values competing with each other uh, and uh, living with each other with enough commonality that they can interact with each other, but nevertheless uh, different. And maybe you will see people uh, moving to the system that best uh, suits them. Uh, what what worries me in uh, in tomorrow's world is that I think that with with the development of artificial intelligence, in particular, you will have different classes of citizens, so to speak. You will have uh, a top layer, which who, which will see artificial intelligence as a booster, and which will boost its own influence with artificial intelligence, and you will have a lot of people who may be, in a way, redundant. <laughs> uh, and uh, there will be enough resources to, to feed them. There might even be uh, the capacity to um, keep them happy uh, wh with what I would call preventative uh, dic uh, dictatorship. That is, they don't, you don't work on repression. You work on making sure that people go to the websites that reinforce the views you want them to have, that kind, that kind of thing. Uh, but then you lose, you lose the human initiative. Uh, and maybe we are, we are reaching uh, that, that stage. Uh, but I think uh, the beauty of the human destiny has been uh, the people's curiosity, has been uh, the desire always to go, to go further and a system that would uh, uh, that would develop and sometimes a bit worried that China could be on uh, on that way on that in taking that direction a system where it, 
where people would fundamentally be happy but would lose uh, the sense of uh, questioning uh, because the, the government will, prov will provide in a way for their happiness, will make it unnecessary to ask questions. It, it that also, would be dangerous. It, it also seems that we're like, as you were saying, this is largely where some states are moving to now. And we look at China as, as an example here is where they control the information that comes into the country. They control the values that people have to approach new information and they decide what they can and can't see, which may be fine for stability, but it's also a, an avenue for corruption and for perpetuation of, of a single party system that may not necessarily be in the benefit of the people that are being governed. Yes, that's why I think at the end of the day, the question of values is, is fundamental. And I think in, in China, it's quite interesting to see the, uh, the anti-corruption uh, campaigns uh, being launched uh, because uh, I think one can, I'm not a specialist of China, so uh, I, 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 can, I have to speak carefully on that, on that issue. But uh, I think in those campaigns, there is maybe there are some political uh, goals to eliminate uh, some uh, people who challenge the, the groups in power. But I think there's something deeper than that. There is a sense that in a world which becomes valueless, uh, greed uh, can destroy uh, everything. Uh, and so in some ways, uh, the, this is the... Uh, uh, the Achilles heel mm. uh, of uh, a Chinese uh, system because for a communist party just to perpetuate itself in power, uh, it needs a set of, of values uh, and no society can live without a set of values. And if the value is just a negative value of preventing people from enriching themselves, that's not quite enough. Uh, uh, you need you need more than that. And so when I, th when I talk about a competition of norms, uh, I think you're going to see uh, more and more debates around the world on what are the values that bring a society uh, to, to, together. So all that technology, all that uh, marvelous technology, I mean, I would like to be 20 years old because I think it's a, it's a fantastic age to live in. It's a kind of new renaissance. Uh, uh, the internet has the same impact on the world that the printing press had uh, uh, at the, during the renaissance. So all that marvelous technology, it does not answer the question of why do we live, what do we live, uh, what do we live for? And I think these questions are, becoming, are going to become more and more uh, prominent uh, because people will discover that a purely functional organization of the world uh, does not answer some basic uh, human needs. The second Renaissance is full of promise, uh, but it's also full of dangers. I mean, we, we forget that the first Renaissance was a time of wars that ended really with the treaties of Westphalia. So it took 150 years to to settle, and I think with the with the internet, with the new distribution of knowledge, with the new ways human communities are going to organize uh, themselves, the foundation of legitimacy are going to change. So, so what is at stake is that you don't want that huge shift to be accompanied by wars at a time when nuclear weapons exist and other weapons of mass destruction uh, are being uh, developed in a way. Because you could have bioweapons, you could have all sorts of horrible things uh, that could spread total catastrophic, that could have catastrophic outcomes uh, in the world. So I look at this age uh, with trepidation because I, I see it as something where new forms of Political communities are going to be invented, and that's extremely exciting. But I think the transition from one type of legitimacy to the other carries with it enormous dangers, uh, considering the existence of weapons of mass destruction. And that's why we really have we have a duty to think through that transition, to manage it, uh, to get the benefits, and avoid the risks. We're talking around about ways about the balkanisation of the internet as well, where you see internet sovereignty or information sovereignty. But to achieve that, you're necessarily going to have the balkanisation of technology and technological manufacturer R&D and so on. And 
Are we seeing something moving in that direction in the way that the world is approaching, say, Huawei, and uh, we're seeing the, the decoupling of the economics of technology? Yes, I think there was uh, the illusion that uh, the internet is just a conduit, <laughs> uh, that is just uh, uh, connectivity without uh, content. And we are discovering that, and uh, uh, 5G is an illustration of that, that because software and hardware are intimately uh, connected as uh, we move to the next uh, phase of internet uh, connectivity, uh, that it, it's, it's, a, it's a package. And so you, you are going to see, uh, and, and you see at a different level, that the, the big internet companies, they, they were keen not for legal reasons and practical reasons not to be seen at co content companies. Uh, and now they, all sorts of questions are raised on uh, what kind of content they should stop, what kind of content they should allow. So the, the internet uh, is moving to the phase where the, dis the, the distinction between content... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Content and conduit is shown to be, uh, to be false uh, and as soon as that is uh, accepted and understood, then indeed the question of about the, the risk of balkanization, the risk and the opportunities too, because they are. I mean, uh, again, it's about different different approaches uh, to, to the world. Uh, but the uh, a certain level of balkanization of the internet is 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 likely. The question is whether. That balkanization leads to uh, a juxtaposition of uh, bubbles that ignore each other, and that would be a very dangerous uh, situation, or whether while you allow for different modus operandi in different parts uh, of the world, you have enough connectivity between uh, those different continents, so to speak, uh, that uh, they are not uh, self-contained, that they, they, they continue to, to engage uh, with each other. And that balance between openness uh, and differentiation uh, is going to be a big political and technical issue, I think, in the future. Mm. I, don't, I don't think that social media or filter bubbles are really just a question for the future. I think that these are issues that we're dealing with today. In today's world, how do you see public discourse or citizen opinion affecting the manoeuvring of international politics and the way that great powers interact? Well, I think what we see today is, is that the, the, the traditional distinction between domestic politics and international politics is disappearing because no human community is a self-contained uh, community. There are all sorts of links, connections that, that cut across uh, borders, which maximize opportunities for influence if one wants to spin it in a positive way, manipulation, <laughs> if one wants to spin it in a, in a negative way. And then when you combine that with the fact that uh, social media help build tribes, uh, where uh, the, 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 the logic of social media is that more and more you, you meet uh, and you talk to the people who think like you, uh, who react uh, like you. So it's a great amplifier of your own uh, sentiments. And so if you combine that with, the con with manipulation, you can see how you can feed into a tribe to reinforce that tribal sentiment through fake news, through a, a very systematic uh, approach to that. And and that is, uh, I think, a great risk for today's world because it means that at this stage, the global internet, far from promoting a global conversation, really reinforces each tribe, in its small tribe, in its own uh, convictions. And what I see, which I find striking, is that when you, 
when you look at uh, opinion uh, movement, I mean, the movement of opinion as they as they develop, uh, you see that in the pre-social media era, you would uh, you would have people. Uh, uh, organizing meetings, uh, then demonstrations. It would be a painful uh, slog where uh, you could be ridiculed because you call for a demonstration and there are 50 people who show up and that doesn't look very good. And it's the end of the story. With the social media, it's like a, an underground river, so to speak. Uh, you can build your constituency gradually, virtually, uh, and then once it has reached a certain critical size, it bursts out in the physical space uh, where it's credible uh, because it has reached that critical mass. So you can, uh, so it's the combination uh, of the, the virtual reality of social media where you build a group and then you can influence with your physical presence through demonstration, uh, a variety of uh, actions uh, on the ground, then you influence the physical space because we're still physical beings living in a physical space. And so you, you see there the, the enormous potential of, of social media in changing the dynamics of, uh, of politics. And that's why we keep being surprised uh, because you, you have those underground rivers that are, being, uh, that are gathering uh, strengths uh, in a very systematic way. Are they organized by people who have understood uh, how to, to manage uh, that space? Uh, you don't see them. Uh, and, and one day they break out in the open and they are very big, and they can uh, really uh, overwhelm uh, overwhelm you if you don't if you have not paid uh, paid attention. Yeah, it's it's a real evolution uh, of what we saw in in the Arab Spring, where the underground rivers wasn't the organisation. The underground river was the discontent that was being felt across many different societies. And when that one spark lit a fire in a marketplace in Tunisia, that organisation happened organically through the networks, through the technology. That that you're talking about now where people are approaching it in a much more strategic way. I wanted to stick on the issue of great power competition and geopolitics. We're in a period of rising geopolitical tensions with the main actors being the US, China and Russia. Where is Europe located on this map of power and how united is Europe as a geopolitical actor and what role is it going to play over the next decade? Well, if you, if you look at uh, Europe through traditional lenses, of uh, nation state and traditional federalism, uh, Europe is a long way from acting as a single actor. But in some ways, uh, Europe is ahead of its time in the sense that the Europe of tomorrow will not be a super state. It's not going to be the United States of America. It's not going to be a, a traditional uh, federation. And I think in some areas, is, it's, it is already a superpower, in, uh, for instance, in, in norms, uh, in imposing uh, norms. And so I think the future uh, of Europe is in inventing a new t precisely this new type of federalism uh, uh, that uh, I'm convinced is, is the future of the world. I think the transition from the traditional political institutions to uh, sort of postmodern institution is not an easy one because what you see today is a reaction in Europe uh, against sort of abstract institutions that that are perceived as uncountable, as distant. And so you have all these uh, nationalistic uh, movements uh, in Europe. Uh, the Italy of Salvini is, a, is an example. Uh, in a way, Brexit uh, is an illustration uh, of that. But at the same time, you have more and more people in Europe who understand that just breaking uh, what has been built in Europe would be suicidal, that Europe has achieved a certain balance between market and uh, social protection, and that uh, the nice garden, in a way, that Europe is uh, cannot survive uh, if it doesn't have a power to influence the jungle around, so to speak. <laughs> uh, and so I think that... That perception is gaining some ground, and the Europe of tomorrow will probably be a Europe of variable geometry, which will make progress in defense, which will continue to be a, a major power in trade, uh, which will probably become a power in uh, 
the development of norms on a number of emerging issues, whether it's artificial intelligence, privacy. I mean, you've seen the the GDPR directive uh, uh, issued in Europe. I think this is th- these are areas where you're going to see uh, Europe uh, uh, becoming stronger. Europe as a traditional political entity, uh, I think in a way it missed uh, the boat in uh, 1989. Uh, it did not uh, pursue... Uh, traditional federal integration, uh, the way it would have been necessary for today, be uh, be a strong power. But in the economic field, you'll probably see uh, the euro uh, becoming more and more an alternative uh, currency to the dollar. It will take time. But the more uh, the United States uh, tries to weaponize uh, the dollar as an instrument of diplomacy by cutting out uh, countries, the more you're going to have countries which want alternative uh, currencies uh, to trade with. And so I think that will play in favor of the euro. And so if the Europeans on their side uh, uh, fill the, the gaps in the euro uh, governance, including uh, the need at some point for a euro budget, it's quite interesting that the departing head of the European Central Bank Bank uh, Mario Draghi, who played a key role in uh, saving the euro during the euro crisis uh, in 2010-2015, Mario Draghi, as he prepares to leave the uh, European Central Bank, uh, said that you you do need a a European uh, budget with some macroeconomic impact. It's a position that has been taken also by uh, Macron in France. It's a position that is not supported uh, by uh, Germany at the moment because they see themselves as then uh, bankrolling uh, other Europeans. So they will have to be uh, safeguards. But I think at some point we will move toward that. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but I think 10 years from now, uh, it will be the case. So you mentioned the mistakes of 1989, So I, which makes me assume when you're mentioning Europe now, that's not a Europe that includes Russia. Am I correct? Yes. And I... I think in 1989, uh, when we saw that Europe was entering a a new phase, uh, we did not look at Europe in a forward-looking way. Uh, At the time, and this was a perception not just of Mitterrand, but also of uh, Chancellor Kohl, uh, there was a sense, okay, Germany is going to be a much bigger country, uh, more than 80 million uh, people. So it's very important to tie Germany uh, in the uh, European, in the framework of European institutions, uh, and uh, that was one of the reasons why not just uh, France and other European countries, but Germany itself uh, uh, developed the euro as a way to ensure that Germany will be uh, will be tied in broader institutions, broader European institutions. Uh, I think that made some sense, but it was too retrospective, because. Uh, nobody in Europe today uh, believes that the problem is a balance between Germany and the other, that there's a risk of conflict, tensions between their differences of views. I, know, I just mentioned the differences of view on the, on the budget. Uh, so I don't, not everything is hunky-dory. But, uh, but the notion of uh, intra-European conflict is just a notion of the past. And I, I believe that at the time, it would have been better to to look at Europe in a forward-looking way as Europe, with the end of the Cold War, is no longer the strategic center of the world uh, as it was during the Cold War, even if it was not the main strategic actor, but that was the battlefield. Uh, it's, no, it's no longer that. So Europe, if it wants to exist in a world in which it won't be the center anymore, has to really look uh, not inward, but outward. And I think that was not done. And that was reflected in the policy vis-a-vis Russia. Mm. And now when you say looking outward, Russia is not really one of the, it's one of the big players in the world that we're concerned about, but it's also on a bit of a downward trajectory in terms of economics and also demography and so on, where we're looking at at China and its power trajectory and an emerging confrontation or at least tension with the US. Does the EU or Europe in general have a role to play amidst this tension between the US or is that something that the EU is best just staying right the hell out of? 
No, I think the EU has a role to play as a bridge builder. Uh, I think, to be honest, today it's very difficult to build bridges with Russia because Russia is in a weak position. Uh, it's a country that has not diversified its economy. It's a, it's a country that uh, has not a great de demography. Uh, and and Putin uh, knows it. So Russia often acts as a spoiler uh, rather than a builder. Uh, and that's also a reaction to, I think, misguided policies in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. Uh, I think the, the, the quick enlargement of NATO was uh, could not be perceived as a good thing for, for Russia, even if there were efforts to show that NATO would become a friendly organization. But when you have been the military alliance uh, to protect uh, Western Europe from Russia, from the Soviet Union uh, for decades, uh, you don't turn that alliance into a friendly entity uh, that, that easily. So I think there was a sense of humiliation of threat uh, by Russia, uh, and Putin has given back the Russians a sense of pride. Uh, so that's why he is generally popular in uh, in Russia, although his popularity has been declining uh, recently. Does that uh, make him more dangerous, or does that make him a spent power? I think it's to to consider Russia as a spent power is uh, more, more more so Putin than Russia. Is his Putin's declining popularity? Does that make him more dangerous as a leader, or does that mean that we're starting to see change? I think I hope uh, that Putin will adjust his policies. I'm not sure he will. Uh, because he's better at politics than at strategic uh, management. I think for, for, for Russia, when you look at the situation today, Russia has the ideal neighbor in its West. Uh, the Western Europeans, they have technology, they have money, they're peaceful, they have no uh, imperial design. They are the perfect neighbor for Russia. China is there with um, a billion point three or point four uh, pe people uh, in the east uh, and russia has a, uh, is as a huge empty territory in the east uh, and so the the real strategic challenge for for russia is how it will handle china in the future and for me, the, the strategic future of Russia is in a cooperative relationship with, with, with Europe. I think Russia, as part of the European Union, Russia is too big uh, for that. It, it would not work. But we should have worked much harder to, to build a, a relationship where Russia, and that's part of the evolution of Russia, to, of uh, the European Union, sorry, for toward variable geometry. We should, we should have worked, and we should work in the future for a system in which uh, Russia is, has a privileged relationship uh, with the European Union. I think today this, this is a bit of a theoretical uh, proposal because uh, Russia has broken the uh, European order when it uh, annexed uh, Crimea uh, through military means. I think it would have been uh, what should have been done would have been a, a discussion between Russia and Ukraine on uh, maybe a special status for for Crimea. I mean, uh, negotiating what was the future of Crimea, not uh, creating a, a fait accompli. That's not not exactly in Putin's playbook, unfortunately. No, not at all. And Putin has been very good and nimble at. Uh, uh, creating facts on the ground. He created facts on the ground in Ukraine. He created facts on the ground in uh, Syria. Um, he is not so good at concluding after that because in Ukraine, uh, uh, Donbass uh, is not is an industrial ruin, uh, and uh, it's a liability rather than an asset. A liability uh, for Russia. So you're saying that the frozen the frozen conflict is in is not a benefit to Russia at all. I think it's a benefit, a tactical benefit, in the sense that having a frozen conflict in Ukraine freezes the situation of Ukraine. Uh, and so ensures that Ukraine is not going to move uh, very, very fast 
let's say to to become closer to the European Union uh, because uh, because of that frozen conflict. Uh, so in that sense, it benefits uh, Russia, but in a more uh, positive way, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a liability because it. It, it prevents Russia from normalizing its relations with the, with the, with, with the European Union. And uh, in practical terms, uh, Russia doesn't get much from, uh, uh, from having uh, indirect control over Ukraine. And when you look at uh, Syria, there's a tactical benefits there for, for Russia in the sense that it has asserted itself as a key actor in the Middle East that uh, the Middle East uh, has to count on, on Russia. At the same time, uh, Russia does not have the money to rebuild uh, Syria. So the, the victory of Assad is a somewhat uh, hollow uh, victory. And again, you, you have a situation of immense uh, human suf suffering uh, in, in Syria. Uh, where uh, Russia doesn't know exactly how it gets out of it. I think Russia now would like to get out of it, but then their Russian Russian interest and I Iranian interest are not uh, identical. Uh, in some ways, uh, Syria is more strategic for Iran than it is uh, for, for Russia. And so for Iran... Uh, Keeping the Syrian regime exactly as it is is more important than it is for Russia, which might accept some evolutions, but does not have the capacity to uh, to push for those evolutions. Mm, yeah, it's interesting that you've mentioned that uh, Putin is not a great closer on his his deals of conflict. When you look at the map, there seems to be a frozen conflict emerging in Syria. There's still frozen conflicts in places like Nagorno-Karabakh. There's also frozen conflict in Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia. Now he's got one on his border with uh, in the Donbass region with Ukraine. Uh, some people would say that that is actually his strategy to keep those areas in play and keep movement around and also... Uh, keep that, that ability to destabilize these regions. Uh, whereas you're saying, no, it's actually his weakness in being able to close these deals. And that brings up my final question of the pod. You come from the United Nations pedigree as well, and we look at the United Nations Security Council as the most potent part of the United Nations. It seems to be that there's a little bit of a narrower space for the United Nations to act within the world, especially when you have these issues like Syria or like these frozen conflicts throughout the world. Uh, and also, we might even throw in the this emerging story of concentration camps in Xinjiang and, and massive uh, human rights violations violations. Is that a failure of the UN? Is, does the UN have to go through changes uh, given these failures or is this just par for the course in the history of the world and multilateral organizations such as the UN? Well, the UN didn't fix the Cold War <laughs> uh, and the UN is not going to fix the relations between the superpowers uh, of today. What is clear is that the space uh, within which the Secretary of the United Nations can operate is shrinking. Uh, at the time of the uh, first uh, of the Bush administration, uh, W. Bush, <coughs> in the uh, early 2000, um, China was not as certainly not assertive as it is uh, now. Uh, the Europeans were less inward-looking because they didn't have the crisis of Brexit. They didn't have all the uh, issues that they have uh, now. So the the UN could count on a on a solid group. Um, the UN Secretary General could count on a solid group of countries, of which Australia was a was a member, uh, to to support uh, his agenda. I think today the Secretary General is a bit squeezed between uh, the United States on one side and China uh, on the other. And uh, he needs more allies. And I think today it's very important that uh, 
countries like Australia, like the members of the European Union, stick together to to promote uh, a multilateral agenda uh, on the global issues where the UN could play a role. Uh, it's not uh, Microsoft and Google who are going to solve all the problem of tomorrow. Uh, the UN must take the initiative, but it will not take the initiative on its own accord. Uh, you need the countries that see those uh, issues as important to, to really help the, the Secretary General uh, reclaim uh, an international agenda. And at the moment, he's in a difficult position to do so because his space has, has shrunk dramatically. Well, I have to say, a podcast that talks about the benefits of the balkanization of the internet and the failure of Putin as a closer is a winner of a podcast, in my opinion. So, Jean-Marie Gernot, thanks very much for joining us today on the National Security Podcast. Thank you. And a big thanks to Jean-Marie Gernot. I do suggest that you all look out for his coming book, whatever it may be titled. The working title is The Second Renaissance, and it looks at the uh, coming trends around the world with culture, identity, technology, and politics, and how these trends may intersect and interact. And if you have any thoughts on any of the issues that we discussed today, is Vladimir Putin a strategist? Is he an opportunist? Does he deliberately create these frozen conflicts around the periphery of Russia or is that his inability to close a deal so to speak? How do you think that nations are going to evolve as time goes on and how do you think that identity is going to manifest itself in the future? Is it going to be a nationalistic identity? Is it going to be a networked identity? Is it going to be a city-state identity as Jean-Marie alluded to in the podcast? Love to hear from you on these things and you can let us know how you feel by hitting us up on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. You can send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net and you can also write a review on whatever platform you pod with. We do take these reviews seriously. We do pay close attention to them. We would love to hear your thoughts on the pods and any kind of pod that you'd like to hear from us in the future. So thanks very much for listening today and we'll speak to you on the next National Security Podcast. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.